So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 2, and if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there's a blue one, and on those Bibles will be on page 565, page 565. Um, If you're new with us, we are uh, simply working our way paragraph by paragraph through one of the letters in the New Testament called Galatians, and uh, we do this not because it might seem like every paragraph is exactly something we've been thinking about this week and therefore are ready to hear and jumping up and down about, but because we believe that the scriptures are God speaking and that what we need more than anything else is to hear from him. So sometimes we come across paragraphs that feel like, well, I'm not sure what that has to do with me. And yet, as we uncover it together and slowly think about what it means, then we find there's a tremendous applicability for us. This will be one of those paragraphs uh, today. Last week, if you were with us, you may remember that we ended chapter 1 and we found in that paragraph that the gospel of Jesus Christ is transformative and trustworthy. And we found that because God intervened in a man named Paul's life and Jesus himself appeared to Paul and called him both to become a Christian and to serve as an apostle. And Paul made the very careful, methodical point that the churches in Galatia should not trust the false teachers. They should trust him. And they should trust him because God himself appeared to Paul and gave him this gospel. Now today we're going to continue uncovering the reasons why Paul is trustworthy and why we should take the authority and stock, if you will, in what Paul says, not in the other people that were teaching them. But we're going to hear a very different reason why. If you're here this morning and you're still considering the claims of Christ, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, we would thank you for being here. It's a real privilege and honor that you'd come spend a Sunday morning with us. And we'd encourage you later today to go back and read the rest of chapter 1, because in it you'll hear a a careful, clear, short, concise definition of what it is that we Christians hold most dear. That's what we call the gospel. Earlier in chapter 1, it says that in just a few phrases, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. That's what we call the, the gospel. It's the message That there is a way, friend, for you to be made right with God. And that way is not by you changing your behavior or adding new habits and stopping bad ones. That way to be made right with God is to accept the news, the truth, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. And that if you'll simply believe that message, that this risen king gave his life for you, then your life will be forever changed. Today, though, as we peer into chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10. And uh, I'll read them in just a moment, but just briefly by way of introduction, we'll find that Paul this morning goes on a trip. Now, everybody loves a trip, don't we? Some of our very best memories are 
on trips. They're the places we've been, the people we were with, what we saw, and who we did it with. But that doesn't sound really like the stuff that belongs in the Bible, does it? I mean, trips are just things we do to enjoy and to make good memories. And yet, here's an entire fairly lengthy paragraph recording a trip. What I want to do this morning is try to show us together that this trip from Antioch to Jerusalem not only belongs in the Bible, but it bears a significance for what you'll do tomorrow morning and on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday until we get together again next Sunday, that there's a present applicability to this old ancient trip from Antioch to Jerusalem. Would you follow along with me as I'll just read the whole paragraph in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, this is Paul dating the events from the point at which he was converted. So he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order that I would make sure I'm not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he himself was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we didn't yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved through you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for who he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now this is one dense, complicated paragraph. But this particular trip that Paul is recording had a tremendous impact on the church It is part of the reason why you and I still can hear the gospel today. Let's examine it under a a couple of headings as we just try to make sense of this rather complex paragraph. One, let's talk this morning about who. who. Who made the trip? Two, we'll consider why. What was the reason for the trip? Three, we'll consider what happened, the happenings of this trip from Antioch to Jerusalem. And then finally, why? The therefore. What's, what's the reason this still matters today? So who, why, what, and therefore. First, let's think together about who. 
you could have fit this entire little travel group, travel party, into one of those little tiny smart cars. Have you seen those driving around? The ones that look like you could just push them over with a finger. Um, I don't know why they call those smart cars. They look rather dumb to me. But three people made the trip. The first one was a guy named Paul. Paul is who we've already been talking about. He's the one who was a persecutor of the church, but because God intervened, gave him grace and mercy, he became a preacher of the gospel. So Paul. And then there's two other people who haven't come up in the story yet. The first one was a man named Barnabas. We know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, that Barnabas was ethnically Jewish, but that he had become a Christian. And he had traveled from Jerusalem up to Antioch to hang out with Paul. And Barnabas becomes a very important person in the biblical story. Barnabas has been known ever since as someone who knew how to give encouragement. And he served as Paul's mentor. You see, even somebody like Paul needed somebody to help them mature in the Lord. That's what Barnabas did. Now, the third person is also somebody that we, we don't know prior to this moment. He's listed last, so that means he had to climb in the back seat of that little smart car where you have about this much space for your legs. So Titus is crammed in the back. Now, we know from this passage that Titus is ethnically a Greek. So that means he was a Gentile, a non-Jew. That's going to become important as we try to understand this paragraph. Titus, it seems, had become a Christian through Paul's ministry. And Titus will become very important for the rest of the biblical story. He goes on mission trips with Paul. He hangs with Paul when almost everybody else gives up on him. He becomes appointed as the lead pastor of a church on the island of Crete. And this is the same guy who has a book named after him. First and Second Timothy, Titus. This is the same Titus. But at this early point in the story, Titus is essentially a nobody. He's just some dude with Paul. Nobody knows him. And yet... Paul wanted him to go on this trip. Now, why will become important for us in a few minutes. So Paul and Barnabas and Titus are in their little car, and they're headed down to Jerusalem. Why? And remember, the reason we'd consider any of this is to get to the therefore. So hang with me until we get there. So why would they go? The trip from from Antioch in the north to Jerusalem in the south is roughly 300 miles. Now, we were making fun of the little cars, but remember, they didn't have one. They didn't get on a plane. They didn't get in a car. They maybe would have been able to find a horse from somebody or a couple of horses, but very most probable is they just walked. So, 300 miles on their feet. That's a long ways. Right now, 300 feet feels to me like a lot because I have one foot. But for these guys, even if they had two good feet, that would have taken a long, long time. 
they must have had a sufficient reason to travel that far. Why would they go? Well, verse 4 tells us. tells us in just a couple of words. It says that they went because of a revelation. Now, what does that mean? Well, don't think the last book in the Bible. Think something else. Think simply one, revelation. The word revelation simply means something has been made clear. It's been revealed. It's been made known. Paul says he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus because God showed him something and consequently told him to go. Now, what exactly that was isn't entirely clear in this paragraph. But the book of Acts fills in the gaps for us. In particular, the book of Acts chapter 11 is where we get more detail. We'll read in a moment a few verses for it, from it, but let me just recount the story for you briefly. Apparently, a guy named Agabus. Now, if you're pregnant and are going to have a son and you're considering a name, I wouldn't recommend Agabus, but Agabus's mommy named him that, and he paid for it his whole life. I imagine he was mocked greatly. But Agabus left the church in Jerusalem and traveled all the way up to the church in Antioch. And he stood up, apparently in the middle of a church service, and he had a, a word from God, a prophecy. And his prophecy was that a great famine was about to come. Now, friends, just like today, if we traveled to a church, let's say, in North Scottsdale or in Paradise Valley, the average person in that church would have more money than the average person in this church. That's not to say anything better about them or worse about them, but simply to say, where you live tends to have an impact on how much money you make. And that's consequently why you live in those particular areas, right? This was true in the ancient world too. The Christians in Antioch tended to be better off financially than the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, some other time we can talk about why, but that was simply fact. You tended to have more money as a Gentile living in in Antioch than as a Jew living in the very heart of where all the other Jews were who didn't believe in Christianity. And so he came up with this word of prophecy, and Paul, as a result, wanted to do something about it. He wanted to help the church in Jerusalem. And remember, there's no fries or Walmart or Sprouts. You didn't get on Amazon and order stuff. So if a famine fell on the land, then you were in big trouble. Because, friend, you grew your own food. And if it was <clears throat> particularly hot, particularly dry, for a particularly long period of time, then you were at risk of going without food to the point of starvation. So for us, when we think famine, we think, Gosh, I didn't eat breakfast. But for them, this was, we might starve to death. So that was the reason. The church in Antioch 
responded to this news of famine with great generosity. If you look with me on the screen, you'll see verses 29 and 30 of Acts chapter 11. Here's what they say. So the disciples, that's the disciples in Antioch, determined every one of them according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So friends, this was the reason for Paul, Barnabas, and Titus's trip from Antioch down to Jerusalem. When they heard that their fellow Christians were about to be in serious financial need, they just immediately responded. They took up an offering. They sent Paul and Barnabas to deliver that gift. Today, if one church hears of a need in another church, they can simply pull out their phones, look up Vimeo, and send money directly. But, but those kinds of modern-day, miraculous, wonderful things we have didn't exist. And so somebody had to take the sack of coins and lug it those 300 miles. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus went for that reason. Now, I wish we could just stop here and spend the rest of this sermon thinking together about the, this act of generosity from one church to another because it conveys some really important things. If we did that, though, we'd be in Galatians for the rest of our lives. We'd, we'd be stopping every other verse to linger for a long time. We can't do that. We want to hit the main ideas. But let me just make a few comments here that would be helpful for us. Friends, while every church is a standalone local body of believers in Christ, we are nevertheless inextricably bound with every other true gospel-preaching, believing Christian church. We're all connected together because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's why we do things here that help us to remember other churches. This isn't the only show in town. It's why Randy prayed for missionaries on the other side of the planet who are seeking to plant churches in Southeast Asia, who came out of this church and have given the last several decades to that work. It's why all of our chosen international mission partners are people specifically working with churches. It's why you do the hard work of taking in residents and interns who most of them don't know what they're doing yet, and you graciously love them and involve them in your lives and train them. It's why we teach seminary classes here every Thursday morning. It's why a portion of every dollar you give goes to support the North American Mission Board that's devoted to one thing, and that's planting churches across America. It's why a portion of every dollar you give goes to help Nine Marks and 20 Schemes, which are specifically committed to helping churches be healthy and starting more churches. It's why all of us should watch for ways personally to bless and celebrate and thank other churches for the work that they're doing, not simply to be thinking about what God's doing here. You see, we're, we're family, and 
family have each other's back. Amen? It's why Christians ought to never let another Christian go hungry or sleep on the street, regardless of what church they're a part of. Because as we do that work together, it is precisely therein that the world will see the gospel the most clearly. It's as we work for justice for one another in those ways that the gospel is heard and seen. So Paul's principal reason for the trip was to take a big sack of money to help the church. Friends, the the gospel changes our financial priorities. It moved the, the Christians in Antioch to care for the Christians in Jerusalem, people that they had never seen and would probably never meet. There's a lot for us to learn there. Our willingness to give to the work of God through the church will be directly proportional to our understanding of the grace we've been given. Giving shouldn't be motivated, first of all, by need, but rather by grace. It should be motivated by an understanding of how much we've been forgiven. Sacrificial giving flows from our experience of Jesus' sacrifice for us being applied to us. You see, we give to each other and to other churches because Jesus gave first to us. Friends, there is way more we could do for our community and for other churches if we were more generous. I hope this example of this church will inspire us to that end this morning. So this was the major reason for the trip. We know who, we know why, And that major reason why doesn't preclude additional sort of side reasons. And we'll see that in the next section as we consider what. What happened on this particular trip? Now that long paragraph I read doesn't explicitly include this detail, but surely they gave the money. Like they didn't spend it all on the way down. Surely they gave the money and that was an a demonstrative, powerful demonstration of the grace of God. But the paragraph really tells us more about sort of a a side reason that came up during the trip. We might call this a church church leaders micro-conference in which Paul called together some of the leaders among the apostles. Look with me again at verse 2, the second half of it, where we see this. It says, and set before them, that them we know as Peter, James, and John. Set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I, that's Paul, proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to be sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now imagine being there. This is the, the big three, if you will. Peter, James, and John with Paul and these two that Paul brought with him. This would have been an incredible meeting to sit in on, 
It's been 14 years since Paul was converted. But it seems that never before this moment have those three and Paul sat down in the same room to have a conversation about the gospel. So this is a a critical moment in the history of the church. The, The four of them had never hung out. Now here at this micro conference, they're doing more than talking about how the University of Jerusalem did in the last football game. They're here to have an important conversation, to think about something together that matters. And in this conference, Paul lays out the full explanation of the gospel he's been preaching. Now, I realize you're all riveted at this moment on the edge of your seats, can't hardly wait to discover what's going to happen. Frankly, I think this paragraph feels boring. Who travels where for what reason? So what? But please hang with me because all of Scripture is inspired. It's all for our good. It all is instructive for our Monday morning. So you're doing great. Give me a few more minutes. It's easy to misunderstand what I just read from chapter 2, the end of verse 2. It's easy to miss what Paul's saying. It's easy to hear that as saying something like this. Is the gospel I've been preaching for 14 years true? Have I been getting it right? But that is not what Paul meant. Paul's already said that he's absolutely convinced his gospel's true. He's already said, I got it straight from Jesus. He's already said, I don't need the other apostles in order to persuade me and teach me and convince me that what I'm saying is true. That's what we saw last week. Nod your head if you remember. Great. A few are still awake. That's what he said last week. Now, remember, there were no verse numbers and chapter numbers in the original version of this. And so, as we turn to chapter 2, it's easy to think, well, let's go on to a new idea, and maybe Paul forgot what he wrote in the first chapter. But friends, that's not what's going on. Something else is at stake here. So you're begging and pleading to ask, what is this conference for then? Well, friends, the greatest threat to Paul's ministry the whole time were false teachers, were people following literally on his heels in order to try and correct him everywhere he went. Imagine what that would have been like. He is quite literally giving his life for the true, right preaching of the gospel of grace. And pesky jerks are following behind him, saying, no, 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 no. He didn't get it right. They were in Jerusalem. They were in Antioch. They seemed to be everywhere that Paul went. It didn't take but a decade 
for false teachers to be aiming to persuade people that Christianity isn't true and it needs to be revised. Why would we be so foolish today to think that there is not false teaching if it was present in the days of people who saw and heard Jesus with their own eyes and ears? What's at stake in this paragraph is not, does Paul know the gospel? But rather, is his gospel being received? And are the apostles in Jerusalem also expressing the full gospel. That's what this paragraph's about. Paul saw that if the false teachers were effective in persuading the Jewish Christians to demand adherence to all the Old Testament laws, then it didn't matter if everywhere he went, he was preaching a gospel of total grace if it was being undone in Jerusalem with a gospel of works. You hear the difference? To, to say it a different way, Paul was seeking to dislodge any leverage the false teachers were having among the apostles in Jerusalem by making sure that those who were already following Christ and they were Jewish weren't saying anything different than what he was saying to those who were new to the faith as Gentiles. Paul's concern was unity among the churches, not, am I saying the right thing? Now, the hilarious part of this paragraph that you missed is Titus, all right? Imagine you're Titus. You are, let me talk to the men in the room. Men, you are a new Christian you did not grow up Jewish, so on the eighth day, your mama and daddy didn't take you to be circumcised. You are a Gentile following Christ, so you have not been circumcised. And f- literally, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, anyone, any male who followed the Old Testament God When they were converted, if not when they were babies, they had been physically marked to show that they were trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet Titus hadn't had that. And Paul maybe didn't even tell him he was going to do this. Paul said, Titus, come along. We're going to go on a trip. (laughs) They get down to Jerusalem And Paul calls this mini-conference. And Titus is the only person in the room who hasn't had this thing done to them. And false teachers sneak into the meeting. And guess what they're doing? They're pointing at Titus saying, he's not right with God. He's not all the way in. He hasn't done that thing all the rest of us have done. He may have trusted in God, but he's not really a part of us. Titus is looking for a way out. And yet Paul makes this significant case that the full gospel is a gospel of grace in which Jew and Gentile alike are welcomed 
simply on the basis of grace through faith in Christ, not having anything to do with circumcision or any other law. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. So Titus doesn't need to go back behind the temple and have that thing done. And Titus is saying, glory, hallelujah. (laughs) Friends, maybe you've had one of those theological tangos. They tend to happen at the most inopportune times, like the Thanksgiving dinner table. You're sitting there having your meal, and Uncle John leans over and says, so you really believe that you can only get to heaven through Jesus? Christian, what's your response to that? Please pass the potatoes. (laughs) No, it's yes, Uncle John. I do believe there is scandalously, there is a way to be right with God. That way is by grace through faith. And that excludes everything else. And yet it includes anyone who responds in faith. That's what this conference was about. These false teachers creeped in and they were at best counterfeit Christians who claimed to know Christ, but yet had replaced the gospel of grace with a gospel of works. And Paul, verse 5 says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the grace, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Church and Christians, we ought be ever flexible with other churches and other Christians when it comes to weaker brother kinds of issues, when it comes to conscience differences. We ought never hold our particular methodologies with the same degree of tenacity that we hold the gospel itself. We ought never say you have to have our musical style or meet at our time or run our kinds of small groups or think about programs the way we do or have Baptist in your church name. We, we simply ought to hold those things loosely, openly, and kindly. There should be a winsomeness and a graciousness about us among everything that the Bible doesn't demand. And yet, when it comes to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought not give an inch. We must be immovable. The people of God should be resolute about the gospel of God. Paul was. And as the false teachers stood there and demanded that Titus be circumcised to be saved, Paul didn't move. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, that's a hill to die on. To acquiesce back to any kind of law is to become people devoid of grace. To tell Titus he had to be circumcised to be saved is to be putting shackles on someone who's already been set free. Peter, James, and John saw this 
and they commended Paul and his gospel. Why? I love the way verse 7 and 9 say it. It says they saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. And verse 9, they perceived or recognized or knew that grace had been given to him. Now, what do we do with this? This trip. What's the therefore? Well, very quickly, give me two or three more minutes. What's the point? Friends, God's, ga- gas- God's gospel or gospel, God's gospel saves apart from works. And that gospel is what holds churches united. Brothers and sisters, we must cling to the truth. False teachings all around us. This won't be popular, but it ought to be said because it so fits this message. Catholicism, Islam, and Mormonism fill our city. And they all claim their roots in Christianity. And yet all of them have veered from the gospel. You will not hear the gospel of grace in a Catholic church or an Islamic mosque or a Mormon stake. Now what's so confusing about that is you will hear lots and lots and lots of Christian terminology. What makes false teaching so hard to see is that it's not totally wrong. It's a little wrong. And a ship turned a little bit off course of over 100 yards, you can't tell. It takes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to realize, oh, I'm at the bottom of South America and I was intending to get to Europe. Friends, that's what happens with false teaching. All three of those are now religions of works. They hold up law as the means of rescue. We are the people of the gospel, of grace, not because we're any better, but because God in his mercy has us here. So may we love people well enough to tell them the truth. And may we do it in such a way that the way we say it isn't the offense, but that the blunt, hard edge of the gospel, a gospel of grace, is what provokes the reaction. May we do it with love. May we share the gospel Freely, for there are so many around us that need it. The second point of application, then I'm done. Friends, this passage helps us understand what to do by implication when we have doubts and struggles about what we believe. I don't think that's Paul's reason, and yet it is instructive and helpful to us. The Christian faith is a body of truth. It's discernible. It's understandable. You can, you can see it and study it and look at it and tinker with it. You can look at it from different angles. 
And sometimes us Christians have doubts about it, don't we? Sometimes we come across something in the Scriptures we're not so sure about. Sometimes we face something in life that causes us to think about our faith in a different way. Sometimes if we're not prepared for suffering in particular, then when that diagnosis comes, or when mom dies, or when a tragic event happens, then it can rattle your soul in a way you weren't prepared for. How does this paragraph help us? Well, it shows us that we need not feel trapped inside, that we need not be bent inward and simply be asking, well, how do I feel? It encourages us to to look outward onto the pages of the Scriptures to see the faith that's been once for all delivered to us. It is objective. It is outside of us. It helps us to look around to each other. Paul knew if the church was going to stay united, Peter, James, and John had to be with him. And so he didn't just look into how he felt. He looked around to his fellow apostles and said, this is what I'm saying. Is that what you're saying? Brothers and sisters, we can do that for each other. We can say, I think this is what that says. Do do you think so too? Because that's weird. And we can help each other stick with Jesus. That's what church membership is all about, by the way. And friends, it, it helps us to look backward to see in a time in which so many of the fundamentals of the faith are being denied by people who claim to follow Christ. When it feels like we're the few weirdos left, then we can look back and see, no, actually, this is what Christians have always believed. This paragraph helps us look outward onto the pages of the Bible to look around at each other, to look backward to what Christians have always believed, and most importantly, it helps us look upward, confident of the grace that we've been given in Christ, clinging to Him, confident that irrespective of how badly you've messed up in the last seven days. God's grace has held on to you. And friends, that's enough for Monday morning. Let's pray.